if you're new or you're visiting, my name's Tyler. I'm a downtown pastor here, one of our preaching pastors and elders. If you have a Bible, go and open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be there in just a little bit. We're continuing um, our series through 1 Peter. We've been in it for a while now. And as we've been going through 1 Peter, here's what you're finding. Peter tends to hit the same themes over and over again, right? You're starting to understand probably he keeps picking up similar threads and themes and bringing them back up. And today, we're in another section where he does that. Where he's picking up a theme he's already talked about before. And the theme is this, is that those who have trusted in Jesus, if you genuinely believed in him, then in every circumstance, we are to strive. We are to strive to avoid and abstain and confess and repent of our sin so that we can be faithful to God. That in every circumstance, we as a people are called to be faithful to God by abstaining from sin. So let's read 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. It'll be our text we'll be studying today. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. Here's what the word of God says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So one of the most consistent and conscious ways you can love God is by striving, what this text says, by striving to do his will rather than your own. One of the most consistent and conscious ways you can love God in your day in, day out life is by striving to live for his will more than your own. And more than any other group of people, Christians should possess an intentionality and a reflective posture on our lives about how we're living. More than anyone else, we should have intentionality and we should be introspective about how we're doing. Why? Because we should be consistently assessing, am I living in the will of God? Am, am, I, am I living in line with what his word, his will is revealed through his word? Am I living in line with what he wants from me? Because most people i found, most people rarely question why they do what they do. Most people rarely question why they do what they do. Now, we spend our, all of our days thinking about what we should do or how we should do it, but we rarely give thought and real um, introspection as to why you desire something over something else. Why is it that you want to do this thing more than that thing? Why this decision and not that one? What is driving it? We don't tend to ask that question of why so long as everything in our life is going well. See, for the most part, human beings just do what comes natural to them, for the most part. For the most part, we just kind of read and react to situations and we do what seems right, what seems best to us. 
We just do what, this seemed like the best thing to do, that's why I did it. I thought a little bit about it and I did some planning, but for the most part, I did it because it seemed right or felt right. And what seems best to you and what seems right to you is influenced by so many things. Where you grew up, how you grew up, the moral norms you inherited, your personal experiences, your personal desires, all of those things shape why you do what you do. This is why if you get to know anyone's story, you understand them more clearly. When you get to know someone's story, their background, and how they got to where they are today, it'll help explain why they do what they do. See, and you've had this experience before. There, there's this person, maybe at work or in your family, about to be Thanksgiving, so you're thinking about them and your family who annoys you, right? And you can't understand them, right? They're, they're those people you're like, how could you ever say that, do that, think that, vote that way? Do, how could you ever do that, right? And then what happens is you get to know their story. And then even though you may still disagree with them, you get to know their story and you realize, oh, I see why they do that. Like, have you ever had that where you're talking bad about somebody and you're like, I can't believe they're being so rude today. Like, oh, their family member just got diagnosed with cancer. You're like, oh, I feel terrible, right? Like you, you have that moment where you realize if I knew all the information about their life, I still may disagree with them but I can empathize with them. And especially when there's someone who you don't understand and then you experience something they've experienced and now you understand why they do what they do. I know for me, when I was in um, college, and especially before I had kids, I used to judge parents all the time for how they parented their kids. Like, I, I can vividly remember a time where a woman that I worked with was talking about how she just wanted her kids to be quiet and she was giving them ice cream or whatever they wanted in the backseat, just keep them quiet. I'm recalling Lauren and going, you will not believe what I heard today. There's this woman who's just giving her kids whatever they want. She needs to love her kids more than herself and raise them up in the way they should go. I will never do that. <laughs> Turns out I had zero kids at the time, right? You're real bold, you don't have any kids. And now I have three and I understand it. I will let them bathe in ice cream if they'll be quiet. I don't care. <laughs> If I, I will give you anything you want, just shut it. That, that's all that I can think. And so now, I can still, maybe other things she said in that conversation, I can disagree with her, but now that I have kids, I'm like, I totally understand it. Because now I've experienced what you've experienced and I can see how you came to that conclusion. Now, like everyone else in the world, if you were to ask someone who believes in Jesus in this room, their story, you would be able to understand them more fully. But the difference for the Christian is that while your family of origin and your experiences and the ways you suffered and your desires have shaped you in significant ways, you will never be able to fully understand a Christian's decisions if you don't understand how Jesus changed their lives. You won't understand them. You won't understand why they do what they do. You won't understand because Jesus came in and he undid our moral norms we inherited. Jesus came into your life and he challenged certain desires and he made sense of others. He turned our world upside down. And this is why the world can't understand why we do what we do or the things that we believe because they don't know our story well enough. If they knew how Jesus came in and saved us and changed us, they may understand more fully. And one of those things that when Jesus came into your life that he made abundantly clear to you if you're a Christian this is, this is a prerequisite of understanding of what the gospel actually is. When Jesus came, he brought to us knowledge of our sin. 
When he came to you, he made it abundantly clear that what comes natural to you apart from God is actually contrary to what is best for you and what God desires for you. What comes natural to you before Jesus is in your life is contrary to who God is. See, there's a word that we've heard a lot, but maybe it's easy to not understand what it actually is, that word sin. Sin is a word to describe all of our thoughts and feelings and attitudes and actions that are contrary to what our God wants from us. And this is why Jesus came, right? He came to you, to me, to save us from this, to take us from our sinful rebellion and make God our Father. Because what comes natural to you and what comes natural to me without him leads us to death. That's what the Bible says. What, you naturally, what naturally seems right and good to you leads you to death. Why? Because it leads you to either reject God or use God instead of worshiping God. What comes natural to you apart from Jesus is that you either want to reject him or use him for your own purposes, but you don't want to worship him. And it puts you at odds with him. Proverbs 14, 12 says this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Jeremiah 17, nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? You've got to know what comes natural to you is not faith and trust in God. What we've learned, our native tongue, so to speak, is how to manipulate God and try to overthrow his reign over us. And Christians should be aware of this more than anybody else. If you're a Christian, you should be aware of this more than anybody else because even though you've been made new, even though you have new desires and you still have sin, you still have this tendency to walk away from him. And unlike most people, Christians, you, you can't just do what comes natural to you. Unlike most people in this world, you can't just casually walk through life without intentionality. Why? Because what comes natural to you still sometimes is actually sin against God. And that's why we have to be mindful and thoughtful. That's why Peter's urging Christians saying, listen, your identity is no longer tied to what you do, it's tied to what Jesus has done, and he has set you free from the power of sin. So he says in verse one, 1 Peter 4, 1, he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So Peter begins with the suffering of Jesus as the reason why we arm ourselves to fight against sin. Throughout the Bible, the way God always calls his people to obey him, to avoid sin, he always starts with what he has done for us. He always starts with his love and his work for us before he calls us to love and work on his behalf. Now the big idea in verse one is really important. The big idea is that when Jesus suffered in the flesh, it says, and whoever has suffered in the flesh, the big idea is that when Jesus died, so did you. When Jesus died, so did you. This is all over the New Testament. That when Jesus is dying on the cross, your old self, who you were before him, was dying with him. Was dying with him. And if, you've, if now he says, if you have died, with Christ, then you will have no more condemnation. You're not far from God anymore. He's brought you near. See, through faith, you have been united with Jesus. You have to know this. 
You have been united with him. And you are so united with Jesus that now his story is your story. And his work is your work. And his future is your future. When Christ suffered in the flesh and died for sin, so did we. So did we. And whoever has died in the flesh is now free from sin. This is what Paul says in Romans 6. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse six, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. When you believe in Christ, he sets you free from your slavery to sin. That now the power of sin is removed from your life and you don't have to give in every time it beckons you to partake in rebellion against God. So when you read texts in the Bible about being free in Christ, right? you read texts like, I'm set free in Christ, that does not mean you're set free to do whatever you want. It means you're set free from the slavery of sin. That's the freedom God has in mind for his people. But when Peter says, now listen, if you're like, okay, I'm set free from sin, but I keep sinning, does that mean I'm not united with Jesus? When Peter says, cease from sin, he does not mean you'll never sin again. It's not what he means. He means that if you have ceased to have sin, be what drives and defines your life. Look at verse two. Verse one says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh, which we have by faith in him, has ceased from sin. Verse two, now he's gonna define, what does it mean to cease from sin, Peter? Verse two, so as to live for the rest of the, of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That now what's changed is your goal and what drives you in your life. You no longer are living just to partake in your sin, you're living for the will of God. So now as Christians, we don't just follow our hearts wherever it may lead us, we follow his word. We follow his word. And if you see desires in you that line up with the word of God, you thank him for that because he made you new. And if you have desires in you that's contrary to the word of God, we confess and we repent and we strive to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, put those things to death. Listen, you will always have various degrees of sin in your life. Though we strive to kill it, you will always have various degrees of sin in your life. But listen, the constant for the Christian is the fight against sin. Faith does not make you sinless it makes you fight. It's important you know that. Faith in Christ does not make you sinless, but faith in Christ does make you fight against it. You should never be discouraged and think you're not saved because you sin, but you should be worried if you don't want to fight, if you don't want to repent, if you don't want to confess. That's when we should be worried about the state of our hearts with God. Now, there are all sorts of sins all sorts of sins that we are supposed to avoid. All sorts of things God commands us to do, and yet Peter has specific sins in mind that he wants to address. See, there's so many different things, but he has a list of sins that he has in mind for these people. Verse three, he says this. 
For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And before we get into this list, it's fascinating to me that Peter assumes the Christians he's talking to have partaken in these things. He assumes that, church, you know the things that I'm talking about firsthand. And it's a phenomenal reminder that God loves those people who are far from him. It's a phenomenal reminder that God is not scared away by our sinning. He's saying, you know what this is like. You were there. You, you were there. Like, like he, he, he has people in mind, I'm sure. And he's saying, remember how God sought you out. Remember how he came and showed you the superior joys and his superior love. But he says, what was that line say? For the time that is past suffices. What does he mean? He's saying, church, your past life and your past participation in these things is more than enough information for you to know the folly of them. Right? You, you should know. You know firsthand these things are not satisfying. So turn from them. And as I was looking at this list, I was wondering, why these sins? Like, why these sins? Of all the different issues going on with this people, why these? And also, is there any commonality that can help us understand what's going on in this context? Because some of the sins are very broad. Some of them are very specific. But here's their commonality. And all the sins listed, the commonality is all of them are indulging every physical appetite and craving they have. The ruling principle of this list is each sin, each sin is individuals and communities partaking and consuming whatever brings immediate physical gratification. That's what these sins are. And, and I'm sure there are several factors that influence Peter to choose this list, but I think one of them that was in his mind was the suffering of these people. Remember, over and over again, we've been telling you, the people in this, receiving this letter are suffering. And I think there's something about difficult times and trials that we go through that tempts us towards sins like these. Sins like these. From what I've experienced in my life and what I've seen in the life of this church is we are most prone, most prone to seek out and justify these sorts of physical pleasures, this physical gratification, these sins, when we're experiencing the stress and the fear and the pain of suffering. I mean, think about it. When are you most prone to justify drinking too much? When are you most prone towards it? Is it not when you're most hopeless? Is it not when you're hurting? Is it not when there's something that maybe no one knows you're trying to numb? When is it that you're most prone to seek out pornography? When is it you're most prone to seek out some sort of sexual experience outside of a marital context? Is it not when you're most stressed? Is it not when you're most fearful? Is it not when you're most weary and you just want to escape some sort of reality in your life? I mean, this is how those who don't know Jesus tend to, and even those who do know Jesus, tend to cope with suffering. Is when you're suffering, we tend to run to all these sins and other things like them to cope. 
And this is what, and Paul actually says, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you probably should. Paul says, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, and that means no one is raised from the dead, then you might as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, he says, if the dead are not raised, if there's no resurrection, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. What other recourse do you have when suffering rips things from you? But to cope but to shift my thinking and my preoccupation with some other physical pleasure. See, just like in Peter and Paul's day, the world around us worships these sorts of physical pleasures over God. See, don't, don't think that our culture is unique in the ways it idolizes human cravings and consuming all sorts of substances and experiences to escape our current reality with physical pleasure. This is a human problem. It's a human issue, but lest we be naive, our current world is unique because of how easy, listen, how easy we can access and satiate whatever sinful craving you have. The phone in your pocket can get you whatever you're after, which is a terrifying, a terrifying reality given how twisted and godless our human desires can be. There is a ton of opportunity and potential with the access we have to all the things that we have access to, but there's also a terrifying reality of now there are less and less obstacles for you to partake in something that degrades you, degrades other people, and most importantly, degrades God and his word. We have more access than any human being who has ever lived to satiate every craving we have. That means we have to be more diligent. That means we have to be more watchful because there's less obstacles in the way of us partaking in this. That's why Peter says, arm yourselves with this way of thinking like Jesus, verse one. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, here's the command in the text, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So much like Paul, when Peter's describing how do Christians relate to their sinful desires, he uses warfare language. Arm yourselves. Arm yourselves to put to death anything that is contrary to the will of God and seeks to overthrow God's reign in your life. But you don't arm yourself with physical weapons or force. You arm yourself with thinking about your life and thinking about joy and thinking about God and thinking about sacrifice and thinking about planning and thinking about every part of your life in the same way Jesus thought about his. The way you arm yourself is by thinking like Jesus. Well, then how did Jesus think is the question. Well, Peter tells us, In chapter two, verse 22, he says, talking about Jesus, he committed no sin. Unbelievable. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That verse 23 is so important. When he was reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Now, the but tells us what was he thinking about? How was Jesus able to endure all of that? What's he thinking about? He's entrusting himself to him who judges justly. To put it more simply, 
the way Jesus thought was to trust God's promises over the promises of sin, even if that meant suffering. That's how he thought. Jesus thought, I'm gonna trust the promises of God over the promises of sin, even if that means me suffering. That's what he thought. Did you know that sin is enticing and tempting to you because latent within every sin is a promise. Within every sin, there's this promise of, if you can have me, you'll be happy. If you choose me over God's word, you'll be more content. If you choose me, don't cost, don't have any pain in your life, choose me, and you'll be more satisfied. And what the text is saying is Jesus knew better. He knew that sin, and now Christians, you know this, sin was ultimately empty. That it was ultimately fleeting in its joy that maybe for that instant you had joy, but it evaporates right afterwards. He knew that. So he didn't lash out at his enemies. He didn't defend himself. He didn't even find comfort in sin because he knew the justice that God could give him was greater than this world could give him. He's thinking very rationally about it. He knows, oh, he wants justice. He wants joy. He just knows God can give him superior joy and justice. And so he's trusting the promise of God and saying, I'd rather do the will of God and suffer because there's more joy for me in it, more justice for me in it, than to do the ease of doing evil. This is what Peter says in uh, 3.17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Church, arm yourself with this way of thinking. Arm yourself with it. Arm yourself, be, t- prepare your mind and tell yourself it is better and ultimately more satisfying to lose and sacrifice and go without in order to do the will of God. Arm yourselves with that way of thinking. Now this obviously flies in the face of what our culture's narrative is, which is telling you all the time, give in to every craving, Give in to every desire because hum, hum, humanity flourishes most when we give in to every craving we have. This flies in the face of that. But also it flies in the face of probably a more deceptive and probably in this room more wi- widely kind of talked about idea when it comes to life and consumption, uh, consumption of anything. And it's, it's this phrase of, all things in moderation. All things in moderation. It sounds like a proverb, doesn't it? All things, Proverbs 47, two. All things in moderation. Only 31 chapters, by the way. Don't go looking for it. Um, it just sounds biblical, right? You, you may have never said that, but surely most of us, and especially when you live in a fluent culture like ours, you have to justify your craving somehow, and so the way we do it is we say, no, 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 all things in moderation. But I want you to know the fruit of the Spirit is not moderation, it's self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is not all things in moderation. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And the difference appears subtle, but it's actually quite massive. See, moderation says there's no reason to give up anything completely, especially if the Bible says you don't have to. 
In moderation says, if the Bible doesn't say I can't do this, then why would I ever give it up? But spirit-filled self-control says, even good things that get in the way of my worship and love for Jesus have to go. Right, like this is the question I get all the time from dating couples is, how far is too far? And I love to Jesus juke them and say, wrong question. Because the question is saying, all things in moderation. The question is asking, well, where does the Bible say I'll get in trouble and I wanna get as close to that as possible? You don't understand spirit-filled self-control. Spirit-filled self-control says, even things that are good, that get in the way of my love for Jesus, I'll even lose those things. Moderation says, there's nothing off limits except excess, which is a sliding scale, by the way. But nothing's off limits except for excess. Self-control says, whatever God says no to, I abstain from and fight to not partake in, even if that offends my own or someone else's sensibilities. See, all things in moderation cannot understand radical decisions and sacrifices and zeal to follow Jesus. But spirit-filled self-control empowers us to order our lives around that which is most valuable. Self-control says, I'm going to do things so I can have what is most valuable, most prominent, and most central in my life, even if that means making radical decisions and steps. There's a young man in our church a couple years ago who came, who believed in Jesus for the first time, and he had grown up in and around a pretty religious home, pretty religious home, but he just never found, like so many people, never found kind of the Christian religion aspect of attending services, and just kind of doing generally good things, but Jesus wasn't really part of the equation, and he never found it compelling like so many people. But then as the truths of the gospel began to change him, and he had faith for the first time, his family, though they were very religious, was very cautious about it. And this is definitely a thing that characterizes the South, of, yeah, the faith thing is good, and the attending church thing, and kind of being a moral person is a good thing, maybe voting a certain way would be great, but don't be too crazy about it. And, and it, they never said that to him explicitly. It was mostly kind of like silent nonverbals until, until he began to be radical with his generosity, until he began to actually give towards the kingdom of God, advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. He began to give in radical ways, and that's when a family member spoke up. And the family member spoke up and said, I understand believing in Jesus, but this is too far. This is too far. You're, you're changing too much. You're sacrificing too much. You can believe in Jesus just in moderation. You, you can listen to his word. You can hear a sermon. That's great. Just don't change your life because of it. All things in moderation. That's not a fruit of the spirit. Self-control is. So this is a question to ask yourself. Ask yourself, where do you have a mindset of moderation instead of self-control? When it comes to sins in your life, where are you kind of flirting with boundaries in the name of moderation, the name of never wanting to give anything up instead of self-control? So drinking alcohol is not a sin. It is not a sin. 
but maybe you consistently kind of toe that line and maybe you, even you're not, you could even say you're in sin when you drink, you always make bad decisions. You always fall on that same sin every time you drink. Well, self-control would say, well, why would I keep doing that that doesn't give me joy? Self-control says maybe I should give up even things that aren't sin. Maybe I should give up drinking for some time because it always leads me towards things that aren't good for me. Sexual desires were created by God and they're beautiful and good when expressed within the lifelong commitment and covenant of marriage. But where are the places where you're excusing behaviors away, excusing patterns of thinking away and not guarding your mind because you tell yourself, well, I have to have give in somehow. Most of the time with your sexual sin, if you're actually trying to fight against it, Typically, if you look at your life, you can notice triggers. You can notice, typically, I fall into sexual sin when I maybe watch this show or I partake in this conversation or I haven't been in the scriptures, whatever it may be. Where do you need to grow in your self-control? And though this isn't listed in the sins there, because obviously they didn't have streaming services back in the day, but you really need to ask yourself the question of, Where are you practicing moderation instead of self-control in how you consume entertainment and browse the internet? This is one of those things that I think so many of us as Christians are very immature in how we think about what we consume and thinking I can consume something that is completely and utterly full of sin and not have it affect me. You're not that strong. You're not that godly. What you consume affects you. Where are the areas where you are filling your mind mostly, not with overtly negative things, but you're just filling your mind with banal, trite, fictional realities instead of filling your mind with things of God or the world he made or the mission he gave to you. See, spirit-filled self-control will cause you to behave in ways and restrict yourself in ways that the world cannot understand. This is what it says in verse four through six. It says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. He doesn't mean Jesus went and preached to dead people. He's saying Jesus preached, when the gospel was preached to us, we believe some people have died. And it says that though judged in the flesh the way people are, that means they died like all humans do, that they might live in the spirit the way God does. The gospel was preached to you to set you free from these sins. And these sins, what he's saying, they're not just God wishes you would do better, but it's no big deal. He says, when you partake in these things, you are partaking in things that offend God and you're partaking in things that are bringing his judgment on the world. That's what he just said. He said, these things are are serious. They're not to be trifled with or not to be treated as small. He's saying, God set you free so you could live in the way that he does. Christians are not stoics. Christians are not masochists who don't care about joy. It is quite the opposite. Because every time you have to know when you're saying no to some desire you have in you, what you're doing is really saying yes to a better one. 
And you're saying no to this, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm saying yes to a greater desire I have for God. You're saying yes to something superior. And so like Jesus, we think about our losing and our sacrificing and our abstaining because there's joy out in front of us. When you're saying no, when you're being tempted, I want you to notice, when you're being tempted to sin, when you say no to that, it's not going to all of a sudden feel incredible. You're not gonna say, I wanna, I wanna do this thing, I'm gonna say no, and all of a sudden it's like, ah. Like, it's, it's not gonna happen that way. It's not. You're gonna say no and sit there for the next 20 minutes going, oh, I just really wanna do that thing. I wanna give in. I, I don't want to say, it's gonna feel tenuous. But you have to know there's joy out in front of you that you're thinking about and going, it will be ultimately more satisfying. That's the way Jesus thought. Hebrews 12, one through three. Therefore, church, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Christians who have gone before us, let us also, think about your life as I read this. Let us also lay aside every weight, even neutral things, every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, how did he think? Who, for the joy that was set before him. How was Jesus able to do what he was doing? Joy was in his mind. He had joy in mind. He wasn't just saying, I have to do it, God told me so. He's saying, there's joy out in front of me. That's how he's able to endure the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus had joy on his mind as he suffered in doing good, and so should you, so should I. It's for joy that we fight against sexual sin because you know the shame of it. You know the shame of it. That's why we fight for the joy of having a clean conscience. You know the regrets that you have and the inability of alcohol and other substances to deal with the real problems you're trying to get away from. So we fight for the joy of clean and sober thinking. You know the boredom and the purposelessness of just binging on entertainment And so we fight for the joy of living a life with purpose. That's what we do. Church, we lay aside every weight that gets in the way of us doing that. But let me end with this. What is most unique about us is not that we strive to embody certain values. Plenty of people do that. Listen, if if, if you're not a Christian in here, know this. I'm not saying non-Christians don't do things like this. Sure they do. What do you do when you find something that's genuinely satisfying? You order your life around it. You sacrifice anything that gets in the way of having it. Everybody does that. What's unique about us is that when we fail, we have forgiveness and comfort and hope every single time. What's different about our fight, what's different about our striving, is we, we fight and we strive from a place of confidence and assurance, not of fear and trembling. This is what it says in 1 Peter 2.24. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. By his wounds, not your discipline, 
By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Every time you stray, your shepherd goes and brings you back. That's what's unique about how we strive. You don't strive from a place of, I wonder if he'll love me. I wonder if he's for me. And if I don't do this right, he's not going to be for me. You strive and you fight from a place of, he's my shepherd and the overseer of my soul. And yes, he's leading you towards righteous living, but his love of you is independent of your performance. You have got to know that. His love for you right now is independent of your performance. You don't achieve an identity. You don't achieve your inheritance. You receive it. You receive it. So now you're doing and you're acting and your decisions, there's this weight that's taken off them because you're not striving for an identity, you already have one. The only way, listen church, the only way you're going to keep fighting sin is when you're convinced of God's love for you regardless of how you perform. It's the only way you'll keep doing it. Because eventually if God's love rises and falls with how faithful you are to him, eventually it won't be worth it. You'll either be cold and lifeless or you'll roll from his people. But when you're aware of his love and his unyielding devotion to you, when you know that you're forgiven and you know that he's for you, fighting sin's a completely different ballgame. Because then you begin striving, then you begin abstaining, then you begin avoiding whatever gets in the way, not in order to be loved or be forgiven, but because you already are. Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, church, and guaranteed the outcome, and guaranteed your story, arm yourselves with his way of thinking. Let's pray together. Father, we are a people with all sorts of desires, all sorts of struggles, all sorts of lies we believe. And God, more than anything, we tend to be a people who often feel guilty, who often feel depressed, who often feel broken, who often feel hopeless. God, so often we try to follow you, we feel like failures. And God, would you use this moment to remind those of us who don't want to fight sin anymore because we're tired? Would you remind us who our shepherd is? Would you remind us that he gives us a hope and a purpose and a plan that's not dependent on our, on our performance, but by his wounds we've been healed? That if he's not a shepherd, it didn't cost him anything to love us, Jesus, it cost you everything to have us. So when you lead us to righteous ways and you lead us to abstain from things the world can't understand, Jesus, will you remind us that we don't do these things in order to be loved, we do it because we already are. We do it because we've tasted and seen that sin is folly and it doesn't produce what it says it will. Jesus, you're the one who sought us out when we were in it. God, make us a church and make us a people who are radical in our devotion.
who don't live a life of moderation as if all things are equal, we live a life of self-control because we found a superior joy. Jesus, fill us up so that we would fight. We ask these things in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand. Let's sing together.